Audi. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the Big Travel Podcast, exploring life stories through travel. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Travelling the breadth of the UK in her enviable job as the presenter of BBC One's Escape to the Country is more calming than Sonali Shah's previous travels, which included making a kidnap plan when filming in Afghanistan, needing armed guards at her wedding in Kenya, and being stuck in a military coup in Bangkok. With family from Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda and India, she's a true child of the Commonwealth and also a Londoner through and through. Please welcome the very well-travelled Sonali Shah. Sonali Shah, I'm a journalist, a broadcaster, a presenter on TV and radio. I, a, a Londoner through and through in many ways, born in London, the first from both sides of the family to have been born in the UK, I think, and, and brought up in the UK, my brother and I. So an East African Asian family, both my parents born in East Africa, all grandparents born in India. So I'm a child of the Commonwealth, I would say. Were they like my family? My dad's an Indian Fijian, although he never went to India as a child and he was second or third generation. Was that a, as a product of indentured labour? Do you know about indentured labour? No, it, it was my grandparents, um, in particular my grandfather's, going to East Africa for the economic e- opportunities. So so generations before them, people had gone to build the railroads um, under the British Empire. But when it comes to my grandparents, who you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, at different times, it was all for economic reasons to set up their own businesses. They'd heard of this country or these countries, Kenya and Tanzania, and actually Uganda on my father-in-law's side, and knew of the opportunities and never really looked back. Like many, many Indians, they go and whether they're at a disadvantage or on the back foot to start with they really knuckle down don't they the worst work ethic is phenomenal and that has run through to today you you know you're embarrassing if you don't work hard it doesn't matter if you don't do well but if you don't work hard that's a family embarrassment isn't it and I think that's a good attitude to have I think it is a good attitude to have and it really frustrates me when luckily not the majority of people but when people around the world sort of complain about immigration coming from an immigrant family at least on one half for me my father I find that very insulting when you know that you know often these people are the hardest workers there are because they've got to strive they've got to prove something and they really they have to survive I guess they have to prove something to everyone they have to prove something to their family back home because they were the chosen people to be sent out to another country so my father was the one out of four that was sent to Britain to study so he had to prove himself because to earn that right. My mother fought to come to Britain. Now, everyone was born British under British rule. So it's, I've come from three generations of British people but because they were all born Brit- under British rule. But both of them had to prove something to their families. And then you have that feeling of proving something to people here. And they felt they had to be better to be treated the same as everyone else around them. So what did they do when they came over? Both of them studied. So my in fact, my parents met at, um, around Bradford. Um, my dad was studying pharmacy at Bradford University. He actually did his A-levels in a year because I don't think he could afford to do it over two years. So he 
did them in a year and then started studying pharmacy at Bradford University. Although everyone back home in Tanzania, his parents were confused because they thought he was studying how to be a farmer. And they were like, why did we send you all the way to Britain to study what our ancestors did <laughs> in, here. In, uh, in India? And my mum studied at a nursing college to become a midwife. And that's where they met. So I'm a sort of product of India, East Africa and Yorkshire. <laughs> did they, was it an arranged marriage? or did they No, 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 they just met. They met and actually, I think, dated for a few years before telling their families. But all sides have always got on. And the only problem was the Kenya-Tanzania border and trying to get married and crossing the border and all of that. But apart from that, you know, all was well, actually. So did you grow up in what we might call a British-Asian community? My parents had moved to London before I was born and lived in Harrow, which was now is probably more Asian. At the time, the area we lived in Harrow wasn't hugely Asian, so there were a few Asian people around. More people had moved to perhaps Wembley and other parts of Harrow. But I certainly felt both sides and knew both sides. I grew up speaking Gujarati. English is not my first language. I only started speaking that at about three when I went to nursery. It was just integrated in the sense that I didn't... Yes, at times I felt different when my mum would maybe give me different food in my lunchbox. You know, and if I got called the P word at school in the playground, I just gave everyone a geography lesson in a kind of really faux naive way saying well actually my family's not from Pakistan it's from India and let me explain the geography to you and by the time I explained it they would just give up the bullying because you know and I I knew what they were getting at but I just thought there's no way to try and fight back just try and fight back with a bit of knowledge and let's see if that just shuts them down I think they just got bored of my explanations. It's such a minefield that one isn't it because you protest that you're not from somewhere if someone does use the p-word and but actually what's wrong with being no, from somewhere no, it's just it's my so only difficult. way of of trying to th- you can't reason with people who want to hurt you really so i just sort of bored them submission i think but i was very much aware of both cultures mainly because of language and i went to a, a saturday gujarati school i learned a lot of indian dancing i was firmly had a foot in both camps i loved having two wardrobes growing up and the Indian wedding, sometimes explaining, you know, Indian weddings to people and how oh, they incredible. go on for days and days and all of that back in the day. So did you wear Indian dress at home? No, not at all. No, only for weddings. So it was very much, my grandparents weren't in this country. They were in Kenya and Tanzania. So I never had, it was always, everything was quite Western. And, and my mum moved here at 17. She spent you know more years here than she ever did anywhere else. And so in that sense, we were just a very much a typical English family just happened to speak another language too and my parents also speak Swahili on top of that and maybe food wise it was a a bigger deal because you know I weaned both my children on curry as well and we're all vegetarians and maybe that was the only difference now everyone's a vegetarian or a vegan so it, it hardly makes a difference especially in London but I think those differences I hardly noticed to be honest I loved I loved being part of two cultures actually. Did you go back to, or go back, because you weren't returning yourself, but did your parents take you back to Africa? Go back is something I'm actually fine with, because in many ways that was back home. I'm very much a Londoner, English, British. I was born in London. This feels like home. I always say London is the best city in the world. I love travelling, but I genuinely believe I'm in love with London. That's an odd thing to say, I think, but I just love this city. And I love coming back home. My grandparents lived in Kenya and Tanzania. And so that was family. And that was where all my cousins were. They weren't here. We had very few people here, family-wise. So every summer, 
was spent the six week holiday my mum would take us to her mum and her mother-in-law and we would go for six weeks to Kenya and Tanzania and my dad would join us for two of those weeks when he could get time off work but that was how it, an easier way to occupy us for you know she had no help here so occupy us for six weeks so my first trip back home was when I was four months old for a family wedding every summer was East Africa so I, I felt certainly felt an affiliation to that where I didn't feel any connection to for a very long time was India where people here would see me of Indian origin looking at my skin but I didn't go to India till 1999 till I was 19 years old the millennium over that new year and it was a shock everyone looks like you wow everyone speaks the same language as you although obviously English is my strongest language and has been for many years but the fact that everyone spoke it's very language, strange just like you and I remember arriving at the airport for the first time in India and I have no family in India these days they're all from Fiji they're Fiji Indians and my dad doesn't have any family in India that he knows of obviously there's going to be uh, relations somewhere along the line but a, a landing in the airport even one of the the porters that was carrying someone's luggage went Indian girl that was the first thing he said and it's so incredible to see people that have your features and but to not feel connected to them or to feel a certain amount of but connection. still feel that, like an outsider. Yes, like exactly. People can tell by the way you dress and obviously by the way you speak. And I found myself trying to take on a lilt sometimes so that people could understand my English a bit better. And so if you heard me in India, I, I put on an Indian accent just so everyone can understand. But also maybe it helps the bargaining when you're shopping. Even, but, it's like the same when you go to America and you find yourself saying tomato because yes, nobody understands yes. you and you say tomato and, and like water. a lot. Yes. And yeah, but I have that. I think they call it a sympathy sort of talk where I take on the accent of the person I'm speaking to. So I do sound different if I'm speaking to my mum. And it's just involuntary. So describe to me your favourite place to visit in East Africa. It probably has to be the coast because those are the memories. Although, uh, so Nairobi was where my mum's family was from and I loved hanging out with all my cousins there. And my dad's side is from Tanzania. So sort of the foothills of Mount Kilimanjaro. You can see uh, Kilimanjaro from my grandparents' house from just from their living room it's so usual to just have it as a backdrop it was it almost felt, felt fake but I ended up getting married or in Mombasa I met my husband at a wedding in Rajasthan and weddings as well as work have taken me around the world destination weddings and one of the deals when he proposed to me was you know let's get married but it has to be in Kenya where he grew up he spent the first 11 years of his life in Kenya and he wanted to get married back home as such so I love the coast of, of Kenya and the white sands and the you know crystal clear waters and it's just with a bit of seaweed a sprinkling of seaweed I, I just love that because that's where I grew up with my family those were our holidays the cottages and yes they've become a bit more luxury and as we've you know started to work and afford it but it just has so many memories throughout my life and they continue and I've taken my daughter there she's now four and a half I took her when I was she was two to meet her great-grandmother but I need to take my son and I need to take both of them to meet my dad's mum as well. Do you think it would be hard going there with children or you'd be okay because you've got lots of family support? It's just the malaria factor so that's the only reason why I haven't gone yet. You have to wait till two if you want them to take malaria tablets so it's just being a bit more health conscious you know I don't think our parents thought about all of that when we were kids we just went but now we're a bit more conscious of everything and so yeah, if we can sneak in a few malaria tablets and the Nutella for my son, we'll take him when he's two. <laughs> Where have you been through work? Oh my gosh, Afghanistan was particularly memorable, only because it's not somewhere you would necessarily go unless work took you. You know, I don't know anyone that's gone there 
on holiday as such. Sadly, because it used to be the most beautiful country and I've read so many books about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And you can see that beauty through all the destruction. Actually, when you go there, the mountains. I went there to film a couple of documentaries about children who'd always grown up in a war zone. Haiti was my first experience of the Caribbean, actually, through work after the earthquake. And again, this is where the Clintons honeymooned. This was a place that was a destination place for those beach holidays. And the Haiti I saw was just obviously nothing like that. I went out to film some news round specials and China. I went through work again after the earthquake there in the Sichuan province. And then I went on to report on the Beijing Olympic Games. And that was my first experience really of really reporting on sport. I'd never thought about it. Before, I was always a sports fan growing up. You know, I started supporting Arsenal in 1996 when Arsene Wenger came onto the scene. So actually, that's it's a You're bit feeling a bit strange... heartbroken now well, that he's know, uh, that's gone. That's all I've ever known. So it is a strange time. At least we can now celebrate him because actually there's been some, you know, Wenger out things for so long. At least now we can just celebrate and uh, appreciate what he's done for the club. So Beijing was great. Uh, yeah, workers. And, and then the triathlon series. I used to cover triathlon for, the, for BBC Sport. And that's like the Formula One circuit but just not on that glamorous level. But, you know, it took me around the world. It took me to New Zealand. It took me to Canada. It took me to San Diego. And then many places across Europe, you know, places like Stockholm that I hadn't thought of visiting, but amazing places that are just these great cities around the world where triathlon is huge. Where so have I'm, you felt most out of your comfort zone? It's got to be the tough trips. Maybe Afghanistan only because I knew the burden that it had on everyone back home, having to go on a hostile environment course and learning what to do if you are kidnapped and making sure there are answers to your kidnap questions back home with only one person if something happens to you. And all those, the preparation for a trip like that, you know, I just applaud anyone who works in a war zone. The preparation for a trip like that is like nowhere else, just because I think at the time Kabul was due an attack as well. And the way you have to go in with protection and things like that, I felt aware all the time of my presence. Yes, I sort of looked like people there when I went and I wore a hijab the whole time out of respect while I was reporting. But then I was also with a camera crew and we were clearly foreigners, therefore attracting attention. And it's you can't really be incognito and you don't know how people are feeling about you and you're clearly British and having to put the camera down every time there are American helicopters ahead in case people think it's an RPG so just that was you know a real learning curve and I was offered the chance to go back to Afghanistan a few months later but this time to be embedded with British troops in Camp Bastion and I had to turn it down that was the first time I realized I have to start putting family first and that was before I'd had kids but I could see my in-laws were really really stressed and I thought do I put them through this again? Do I chance my luck again? I really wanted to go, but I thought I've got to not be selfish here. And that was the, the first time I had to learn how not to be selfish with work. And then obviously having kids really, really teaches you that. And it's frustrating at times. You hadn't necessarily planned to be a war reporter. And that is a step, you know, following around the troops and everything is a, a step too far, I think. Well, compared in many to what ways, I think that would have been be. safer than Kabul because Kabul, you're on your own, but you can't assess the risk. And I just think so soon, had it been maybe a year later, I think so soon after the first trip, it was just stressing family out a little bit more. And I think as if you're a journalist, you just want your nosy and you, know, you want to just find out things and that overpowers any other fear, really. So, so what was it like there? Describe Kabul to me, describe Afghanistan. Gosh, rubble, a lot of rubble everywhere, actually. And there are mines everywhere, cluster bombs everywhere, that these kids in classes are taught how to 
they look out for the signs of it. But, the, you know, remember, these children have not known any different. It's been years of war after war after war, and they don't know any different. And it's really usual to see troops walking around. It's really usual to see foreign armies. in. And I just can't believe that's how they grow up every day. Other people have gone through it, you know, be it the Troubles in Ireland or other communities have gone through this. And I just think we're so, sometimes we don't appreciate how lucky we are not to have gone through that in many ways. Where have you felt most comfortable and happy apart from your home countries? South Africa was a big deal to visit only because East Africa is always home and people always say South Africa feels nothing like the rest of Africa. It feels like Europe in Africa and actually that's a great description of it in many ways. We did the garden route. I love the fact actually it was Europe in Africa. You had all the beauty of Africa and the safaris. One of my favourite things to do and still my favourite holidays is safari and I that's what I want, where I want to take my kids. I went when I was pregnant. I, I absolutely will never get bored of going on safari. And what I loved about South Africa is you didn't have to worry about your health in terms of, yes, safety is a huge aspect, but you, there's, no, there's no malaria on that route or anything like that. Well, everything I was used to thinking about in East Africa and the conveniences of Europe, but in Africa. So I, I loved that. But I, I loved going to Brazil. I've loved Japan. I went with work and it's just another world. And what I found hilarious is going to Japan and from the back, everyone thinks you're Japanese because I'm small with dark hair. So it's only when I turn around, people sort of look at you, you know, not expecting you to look how you look. You see and a shock such... registered on their yeah, face. Yeah, honestly, you can see that. But, you know, if you're sort of taller with white skin, people can sort of see that coming from a mile off. But with me, I used to surprise people as I turned around because apparently from the back, I looked East Asian as well. So I, I found that quite amusing. But I just absolutely love traveling. I love Gosh, I, I mean, I was counting up the countries last night. I, I don't even think I've got them all. But, you know, on honeymoon, we went to Thailand and Cambodia. But weddings are really, honestly, weddings have taken us around the world, which is brilliant. I love this. I'm very jealous because nobody's getting married in my life at the moment. And I myself got married in Spain, which was wonderful because instead of just having a day like you would at home, you've got a whole week with all your best friends and family there yeah, in the everyone's world. Everyone's relaxed. Everyone's relaxed. Everyone's having a party. Everyone's dressed in beautiful, bright colours and... You know, there's fabulous food and wine and it's just the most No one has to go experience. to work the next day or the day after. Exactly. And that's the advantage. That's what we wanted. But also we had lots of guests from East Africa and an elderly, you know, grandparents as well. So we wanted to make it as easy as possible. So where have you been? Where's been the most fabulous wedding that you've attended abroad? Um, probably one of the most spectacular was Rajasthan. A friend of mine got married out there. It was so palatial. That's why. That was my first experience of Rajasthan, uh, my only experience. I've got a lot more to explore. I think that, that you can't beat Rajasthan if you want those palaces. And that's why so many people now get married there. This was you know, more than 10 years ago when I went for a wedding out there. But it was just amazing. But what I love about my own wedding in East Africa is I, I genuinely enjoyed it. I felt like I was on holiday. I remember it. I wasn't stressed out about it. We did a, quite a few trips out there to plan it and everyone was in holiday mode and almost the wedding was incidental you know it's just part of a massive party and I love that I'm about to go to Greece for a wedding join me I will I'm there I'm there yeah, so Where that's my next going? um Salonika so that will be my first experience of a, a wedding in Greece and a Greek Orthodox wedding as oh well. I'm so visualizing Mamma Mia yeah, it's gonna be amazing <laughs> in my head that's how it's going to be so. are you taking the kids yeah I'm taking the kids um let's see how it all goes because they're evening it's an evening wedding but have you found that travel has changed with now you've got children yes you know I used to I, I went whitewater rafting from the source of the Nile in Uganda and gorilla trekking in Uganda and whitewater rafting in Seattle in America and uh, in in Australia as well I love 
I'd love a bit of adventure along with relaxing as well. I'd like to see, I love cities. It's just not practical with children, is it? Travel has most certainly changed. There was a lot more long haul before the kids, trying to get in as much travel in as possible, trying to soak up the world, really. And there's so many more places on my list. But at the moment, I think it's got to be short haul. I just don't want to do long flights. My kids are great sleepers, but in a bed. They're not great sleepers unless we fly business class and that's not where I want to go and can't afford anyway. And you Yeah, know, you might want to go there. But, you <laughs> know, and if I do, I'm not paying for the kids to also be they can go up back. in the front of the plane. Exactly. exactly. No, I don't, I don't want them to constantly have, I'm quite aware I don't want them to constantly have these luxurious holidays only because that's what I might want from a holiday at the moment because I just need a break. We have gone to Dubai a couple of times, once for a wedding, but also once just with the family. And I can completely see why they're great holidays everything's sort of set up for you but I think we'd like to try something a little bit more adventurous than that sort of sanitized world and there's nothing wrong with that it's it's an easy holiday it's you know it's relaxing you know everything's catered for so this year yes we'll go to the the wedding in Greece but we're trying to do a bit of Spain and a bit of France in Egypte and seeing if that kind of works out with the kids. But, you know, at the moment, they don't sleep in the same room as us and all of that. So we can't get just one hotel room. It's really difficult. So we're at that funny phase where we have to sort of do very short tour. And because we're all vegetarian, Italy's amazing. We took my daughter to Venice and that was just great, staying in the Lido. It's a lot of Europe and probably a lot of Italy, really, just wherever's family friendly. But Europe isn't cheap either, is it? Well, it's not cheap, no. But the advantage we have from over here is that you can get there quickly and easily if not cheaply especially now you're working on school hours like I am that really yeah, sort of clips absolutely. your wings we are tied into school holidays mm. and I think trying to find those I'm trying to rediscover Europe in a different way maybe within the way my parents didn't take us to Europe that often because we were always in East Africa so we did the odd butlings and the odd pontons and all those kind of holidays as a kid or when people visited we would go up to Blackpool maybe and you know really lovely simple holidays we never did the camping thing because it's sort of an alien, you know, we now do glamping in East Africa, but it's a really alien concept culturally, I think, for a lot of Asian families. Because, well, as my husband says, why go somewhere worse than your own house? That's not a holiday. But, you know, we grew up having to go to the loo in East Africa in a hole. People didn't have stand-up toilets. So people forget that that's how we've grown up on holidays. So now the idea of going to a festival and maybe going to the loo in that way is just not, it's not aspirational. And, you know, yeah, you I don't need that. to rough it as such. I get, we, my parents were campers and our holidays every year we're driving down to the mm. south of France and we had a camper van and we'd pitch up a tent. So I say we, I did nothing. I was just sitting there. And, and that's how I would be now going camping. The only time I've camped is at Glastonbury or mm. festivals and I've let whoever I'm with do it. If it's <laughs> without the, the kids, then I'd, I'd do it, but I'm not sure with the kids. But then, you know, I, we, we've done the, the sort of posher tents in East Africa and I like that way of doing safari as well where it feels a bit raw, but, you, you know, someone puts in some hot water into your personal shower in the morning so that's quite nice you have never been glamping i do like the idea of it it's really nice it's a nice way of sort of appreciating the rift valley tanzanian safaris are amazing like the ngongong crater is i would highly recommend that and it's kind of people talk about kenya a lot but that ngongong crater is you're guaranteed to see them in them it's just stunning but safari all over east africa you absolutely can't beat but now i'm spending a lot of time bear in mind through Escape to the Country, exploring the UK. Oh, yes. Let me let me explain. Well, explain to me Escape to the Country because so, it's 
a great program. It's probably one of my ideal programs. It's to a lot of myself. people's sort of guilty pleasure at 3pm, isn't it? I just look at properties for a living now. It's amazing. I go around the country showing people properties for BBC One. It's a daytime um, BBC it, program. Yeah, exactly, at three o'clock. It's on every day. And so we film a lot during the year. And I go away for three nights a week to film each episode. But the whole episode takes a week, actually, to film. There's a lot that goes into it and people generally move. And I've been revisiting people recently who move. And what's been nice about it in so many properties always been a personal passion. I've always had a dream to build my own home one day and hopefully I will. And what's great about this job is that it's taking me around the UK, which I didn't really do as a child because we all, all, every, all our money was always on going back home to the grandparents. So I'm exploring the UK now and visiting places that I haven't been myself through a school trip. And, and it's beautiful. That, it's We're so, so lucky. glorious. The oh only thing gosh. is the weather. That's the only thing yes, that's wrong with that's the UK. Yes, and that you can't predict. Well, I think before it was okay because there were four definite seasons and you'd always been dressed right. I think recently it's quite worrying what we're seeing with climate change and you can't predict the seasons anymore and just the different weather patterns going on. And that is a bit strange and that makes it harder, therefore, to plan a holiday in the UK. But... Maybe that's the case all over the world. I don't think, you know, we were stuck in a windstorm in Dubai in February when it's meant to be quite okay. So I don't think you can predict the weather anywhere. I think it's changing everywhere. It's really surprising and and worrying, very worrying. It it is. And we had that heat wave in April, didn't we? I think we, listen, let's all try and do what we can. And there are places that, you know, I've never been to the Maldives and you hear about that it might not exist in in years to come. And there are places I want to visit, but it's really sad when you hear things like that there are communities who are really up against it a lot more than we are tell me about uh, some places you've been in the uk on escape to the country oh, well everyone's favorite always, always devon or cornwall there's a lot of people who want to move there i've been to norfolk a lot people love the accessibility to the coast and the peak district of course there's just the dry stone walls people love dry stone walls chatsworth house and all of that oh, but it's amazing. been so lovely to visit it again those big um, old country houses, oh, that's amazing. what people see, think when they see when they think of England. If they're not thinking of London, they think of beautiful rolling green fields and those big old country houses. And that's, that's why I love the job, because you get to see the best parts of Britain, really, because people are wanting to move to somewhere beautiful and because they're perhaps where they live now in a suburb is it's just a little bit too busy for them and so trying to find someone a property in those surroundings is just amazing. So I've always wondered how far, how much involved the presenter is in finding the property or do you just no, turn it's a up research and talk? team so it's a research team that find because they have to find it the week before or the few weeks before it they have to be houses that are genuinely on the market at the time and sometimes houses are bought while we're securing other houses and so it's there's it's quite quite a lot of work that goes into each episode that I hope people appreciate and lots of people do buy them. They actually buy a house that you've shown them. And and inevitably, a lot of the time it's the mystery house because you're taking them to somewhere that they wouldn't have necessarily gone to see themselves. I think I need this service myself. (laughs) Can I do it without being on TV? Yeah, go on. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. So many people say that to me, actually. They just don't want to be on the TV side of things. I I mean, I'm I'm on TV anyway, but not in that capacity. No, no, you You don't want to be sort of personally. Yeah, yeah, it feels a bit... I I need to start a celebrity version of it. Yes, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm a very... There's a celebrity version of many other shows, so maybe there needs to be celebrity. I'll tell you what, I'm I'm only very much the Z list on the celebrity scale, but um, I'd be up for that. Where would you move in the Um, We're we're looking at Sussex, but probably more Brighton than Sussex, Mm. so that's not really the country. No, but... No. You might throw me a wild card away. The mystery house. <laughs> this is a more rural part of Hove, maybe. So what uh, What haven't I asked you? What stories do you have from travelling? Have you ever had anything 
terrifying or negative happened to you? Oh gosh, in Thailand. Sometimes we look at each other, my husband and I, and just say, oh, this will be our luck. But in Thailand, well, it was Bangkok. We couldn't get out of the country because there was a coup going on, as you do. So we kind of knew things were rumbling while we were in our hotel in Bangkok. And then we got a phone call from the airline saying, we're not really sure if we're able to fly out of the airports and things like that. And it was just this mad thing of let's just head to the airport and see what happens. And then you're, we were just sort of on the tarmac, you know, not very secure tarmac where people were handing out written out paper tickets. So no level of security. And you're just trying to get on the first plane out of there. It's just a weird experience of getting caught up in trouble. Um, tsunami warnings when we were in Malaysia, I think. Pretty scary because it was after the major... We had gone out to... In fact, our Thailand trip, we went to stay at a place that had been rebuilt after the 2006 tsunami because we wanted to support that kind of hotel and the workers that had lost their families that were now working at this hotel to get then caught up subsequently in a tsunami warning wherever you're being told to go up onto higher ground and that's just you just can't imagine what people who had lived through that huge tsunami had gone through but you're just more aware of all of this now aren't you yes I mean I've been to all those places in in Thailand particularly that were affected by the tsunami but pre-tsunami so to then watch it on tv it was just shocking knowing you know thinking well where would you run to you know like KPP there's a bit of higher ground but it's you have to sort of get through the little shacks and villages and bars and restaurants really fabulous little area to get to this higher ground and you just people wouldn't have had the warning because they wouldn't have expected it. And No, and it's very usual before that tsunami happened, it's very usual to see big waves and you didn't think anything of it. But now I'm really aware, I look out and I always look at the waves and I am so aware if I'm in that part of the world, well, where, what's happening? Does it look unusual? Let's make sure we know where higher ground is. A story that always sticks out to me, I think it was a British girl, but there was a girl who was at school age, sort of eight, nine, ten. And she actually told her parents that the wave was coming because she had learnt something about it in school, learnt something about bubbles, learnt something about the the tide going out unexpectedly, quickly and quite dramatically. And she actually warned her parents. And it's things like that when you're in those places now, you you sort of look for these signs that, um, you know, something might go amiss. We were in South Africa after there was a a British couple uh, on honeymoon and the newlywed wife had been killed and... We, were, we went out there just after that and lots of people were looking at us because they were of Asian origin too and sort of kept asking us, do you know them? And so that holiday was sort of... Actually, you, you, do, you don't look unlike her, you know, knowing and from lots, what I knew. And we were, in the similar, we were in similar sort of areas and we would have never visited a, a, a township. And it, likewise, when we went to Rio, we wouldn't have gone to a favela. When we were in, you know, Mumbai, we, we don't go to the sun. Because I don't, I don't like the idea of staring at people in their homes like that, you know. But only because maybe I've grown up in East Africa where you've seen poverty around you and maybe you're a little bit not as aware of it or, you know, just more used to seeing it. I don't I don't know. But, yeah, that was a strange holiday to where people kept asking you about that case. And some parts of it just didn't feel right because you're in a bar and then people will just ask you about that. But you're quite aware of how unsafe parts of South Africa are. But, you know, in East Africa, at the time of our wedding, we had to really rearrange a few things. The election had happened. There was a lot of bloodshed. We were very close to cancelling the wedding. People advised us actually cancel it. Don't take out, you know, a hundred people from the UK, you know, who are all paying for themselves to come out to a wedding. Don't ask them to come out there. But we contacted the hotel and we really felt that if we didn't continue with the wedding out there, that all those people wouldn't have 
work for the wedding in that hotel and actually as it turns out when we went to the hotel they were on skeleton staff and a lot of people had already had to go back to their villages because there wasn't enough money to pay them because so many people had pulled out of their holidays and so we're really glad we didn't but it did mean that we had a few pullouts for the wedding people I guess who don't necessarily know East Africa didn't have family out there were a bit nervous understandably and they'd have every right to but also we ended up having to go to Diani Beach in Mombasa you have to if you fly into the main Mombasa airport, you have to take a ferry across and then there's a, a car journey, a, a sort of hours car journey. We had to provide armed guards for people because that's what we were advised, that if you don't, people won't feel safe. And it felt like a bit over the top, but it was just what the travel company sort of advised us. And, and how did your British friends who had never been to Africa To be honest, most, that? they just kind of went with it. I think they knew from, we wouldn't have asked people to go out if we thought it was unsafe. And so we we said, look, we really feel it's safe, but you've got to make your own decision. And I think a lot of people, you know, felt a bit better that they were armed guards, but we just didn't know how to balance out having this wedding and wanting to make sure that we were helping people out and feeding into the economy. And also having planned this wedding ourselves, there's selfish reasons in that too, and people's safety and everything, which is paramount. And what sometimes what you see on the news isn't what's happening everywhere. Yeah, it's pockets of violence. And you know, we had local knowledge and we, we had that understanding of where not to go. There's people that are afraid of coming to London. Yes. And I remember at the time of me going to Afghanistan, uh, some of the interviews I was doing out there, they were saying at the time, well, Kabul is safer than parts of Glasgow or Birmingham or London. And I, I think that you can get caught up in something anywhere. And that's, that's the reality of the world. It's it just is. being aware and not taking unnecessary risks. On a lighter note, I'm going to bring you to my last question, which is about music, because I always ask a last question about music. I think music and travel often go hand in hand. We have the time to listen when we're on journeys and it helps evoke and cement memories and bring up all sorts of emotions. And so if you had to choose a one song that reminded you of a special time or a memorable time when you've been traveling on your travels, what would that song be? can't ask me about one song I know because (laughs) music is such a huge part of our lives and everyone's a dancer in the family so it's it's on all the time all day every day so it's difficult there are so many memories with different pieces of music I probably should choose something like oh my wedding dance in East Africa but I'm not going to actually because what a really memorable experience for me actually was when I was in Brazil, in Rio, and just forgetting that that's where The Girl from Ipanema was written. And I had grown up playing the steel pans in a steel band, you know, performing in places like the Royal Albert Hall. Um, I was in, a, in an orchestra, but I was the, the, I played the, the tenor steel pan. And having always played The Girl from Ipanema on the steel pans and then ending up in Brazil, and just randomly walking past this cafe and realising, oh my gosh, this is where it was written. So that was a really nice moment for me because it just took me back to when I used to perform Girl from Ipanema in the Royal Albert Hall and now I was in Rio. And it was in Rio such a, it looks like how it does in the pictures, doesn't it? It's mm. such a beautiful city. And I know there are problems there and, and people do feel unsafe and you hear so many stories, but it's also a city well worth visiting. I'd love to hear the Girl from Ipanema on the, the pan 
what are they called? Pan drums? Steel, the steel, steel pans. pans. Yeah, steel yeah. pans. I'd love to hear the girl. Yeah. I hope I would still remember pans. if I came across a steel pan. I, I used to own a steel pan. I don't know what we've done with it. But Can I, you not practice on like a bin at home? Well, or something you've like got that. to have all the notes. There's uh, a bit more sophisticated than that. You've got to have all the notes. But. Showing my steel pan <laughs> ignorance. Thank well, you so much. Well, I suspect much. most people have that. Yeah. It's an unusual it's great, instrument. It's a to great affect. sound, though. It's a that's lovely sound. That's in the harmonium. So the two instruments I grew up playing, people were like, what? <laughs> I like I like that they're from oh, no, around it's a the lovely world. Sound, really lovely sound. Thank you so much for coming on the Big Travel Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Sonali, and thank you for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. Coming up in the next week, we have a Father's Day special. So look out for that one. And in the meantime, thanks again for listening. See you soon. <laughs>